Hi, and welcome back to Shipping Shakespeare. Last episode, we started talking about As You Like It, and this episode, we will finish it off with our problematic faves, the ships we want to sink, and the hate sex couple of the month. First, Julia is going to summarize the play, and then I'll do a rundown of the key ideas. In case you've forgotten, As You Like It is the story of Rosalind, the daughter of an exiled duke. While her father, Duke Sr., takes up residence in the Forest of Arden, Rosalind has remained behind in the court of his brother, an usurper, Duke Frederick, father of Celia, who is Rosalind's cousin and best friend. And that's only the beginning of the complicated relationships in the play. Oliver sets up his younger brother Orlando to fight a wrestler named Charles, and probably Orlando wins, earning the attention of Rosalind and Celia. Rosalind and Orlando fall for each other pretty much immediately, but their courting is interrupted when Duke Frederick, threatened by Rosalind's presence, banishes her, too. Celia, disguised as a shepherdess, opts to go into the woods with her bestie, while Rosalind hops straight into a pair of fans to become the youth Ganymede and they take the court fool touchstone with them for good measure. Orlando eventually finds them, and a disguised Rosalind teaches him how best to win her heart, although she's pretty obsessed already. And the play is also populated with love-struck shepherds, the Duke's band of merry men, and one distinctly unmerry man, Jacquees, and uh, more than a few resistant ladies. Eventually, Rosalind arranges everything to her liking and marries Orlando. Celia remarries a redeemed Oliver for good measure. Touchstone also scores a wife somehow, and conveniently Duke Frederick sees the air of his way and takes up residence in a monastery. So that's as you like it. Some of it, anyway. Because there's a lot of it. (laughs) There's a lot of it. Liz is going to take us through some of the major themes, and then we will get into it. As Julia mentioned last episode, one of the key themes in this play is the idea of leaving behind a more structured and ordered world to escape into a freer existence and to see what that makes of you. It's a sort of parody of the pastoral genre. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff with gender and sexuality. Rosalind disguises herself as a man. You have yet another play where a woman in drag teaches her lover how best to woo her. It's talking about subverting some of these social boundaries. It looks at several different kinds of romantic love. You have this sort of parody of courtly love in Sylvius's obsession with Phoebe and Orlando's bad poetry. You have a much more practical look at love from Rosalind and a little bit of commentary on that from Celia. And you have the purely venal love, as exemplified by Touchstone and Audrey. (laughs) You have also a discussion of the relative importance of family versus friendship. The play seems to come down on the side that friendship, the family you choose for yourself, is much more important and meaningful than the family you happen to be born into. Are you ready to get into some problematic faves? Let's do it. Okay. Along with being the major canon couple of this play, Rosalind and Orlando is a little bit problematic. It is, and you know, weirdly not for the usual reason that I find the canon couples problematic. Like, a lot of it is her, weirdly enough. As you mentioned in the last episode, there's nothing wrong with Orlando. He's not a whiny Orsino type who needs a good swift kick in the head by reality. He's not mopey and emo and really misogynistic like Hamlet. He's an actual good guy. Right. Like, without any capitalization or air quotes or insinuations. He's just a decent person. Right. Kind of the worst thing you can say about him is that he's a terrible poet. A terrible poet. Terrible poet. After a couple stanzas rhyming Rosalind as it's supposed to be as Rosalind, he turns around and starts rhyming it as Rosalind. You know, there are only so many words that rhyme with Rosalind, right? There are. He should have kept his poem that length. (laughs) Or much shorter. (laughs) 
the problem with that ship is the problem with shipping Rosalind with anybody in this play, which is that she outclasses them all and she kind of knows it. Right. So she's extremely intelligent. She knows how to get people to do what she wants. And that makes her a manipulative character, which is kind of tricky as faves go. She's not doing it to be malicious, which is why we still love her. Absolutely. No, she's not a cruel character. It's just she doesn't necessarily use her powers for evil, but I would argue that she doesn't necessarily use them for good either. Yeah, no, I mean, she mainly uses them for amusement. Mm -hmm. She cross-dresses because she thinks it'll be fun, because she might as well make use of this unnatural tallness. Right? It's a weird choice. There's no necessity to it the way there is to a lot of other cross-dressing in Shakespeare. Like, it's not a survival thing. She kind of bills it that way, but you don't really believe her. Like, she could just as easily dress as, you know, a woman like Celia does. Even once they're in the forest and all of these courtly artifices have been removed, it would be perfectly fine for her to reveal herself to Orlando and be like, hey, I am the Rosalind you're looking for. (laughs) Yeah. But instead, she does this elaborate mind game. It's weird. It maintains the power structure as something that favors her, number one, and that also she understands. While everyone else is kind of fine with the chaos of the forest, she creates these kind of arbitrary rules to maintain a sense of order that she likes. Which isn't, again, it's not a bad quality at all. I mean, it's it's one of the things that I admire about Rosalind, but it does make it a little bit hard to just ship her with anyone because it is not an equal footing for anybody. Like, they don't get to determine the rules, and that makes for an unequal relationship, whoever it is. Honestly, I'm kind of thinking about Cleopatra now. Oh, say more. Shakespeare's Cleopatra does the same thing as Rosalind in that she's the one who makes the rules. It's her kingdom. She is the queen. She says what goes. And even Antony is completely flat-footed when it comes to her. It's a really interesting comparison. I would not have thought of that before. But you're right. But the interesting thing is that while Cleopatra is in a tragedy and is therefore punished in no small part because of this immense and dominating chutzpah in, you know, shaping her own world to her liking, Rosalind, since she's in a comedy and is also basically English, she's not like the exotic other, isn't punished for doing exactly what Cleopatra does, for making her own world. Arguably, she's rewarded for it. She gets everything that she wants. It's one of the things that undermine the conflict in the play is Rosalind is so control for the whole thing. Like, I'm never actually that worried about her or what's going to happen to her because she has it so well in hand the entire time. The only moment when she's ever thrown is when she realizes that Phoebe's falling in love with her. That does take a little bit of a... (laughs) an adjustment on her part that may be like the only thing she handles badly I would agree which makes sense for it to be the only thing that throws her well a little bit of sense I mean depending on how you read her relationship with Celia you'd think that she might have seen that coming but okay maybe she has a complicated relationship to queerness and thinks once she puts on the pants she's exempt I think it's incredibly fair to say that she has a complicated relationship with queerness if we're reading Rosalind is queer I mean because obviously the other problematic fave here is Rosalind and Celia because it's our only other fave yeah. <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it <laughs> Which is problematic both for the reason that we've just talked about, that Rosalind is a master manipulator, but also for reasons that we talked about last episode. This is not an equal relationship, that Celia is much more in love with Rosalind than Rosalind is with Celia. Right, and that's tragic more than it is comic. Nothing terrible happens to Celia because of this. Unless you count marrying Oliver as terrible. Uh, Next section. (laughs) 
but yeah, yeah, Celia obviously cares more about Rosalind than Rosalind cares about Celia, which isn't to say that Rosalind doesn't care, just that Celia cares so deeply. And as we said, Rosalind is well aware of that fact. This is the most important relationship of Celia's life. Mm-hmm. And while it's essential to Rosalind, she could live without Celia. Oh. Oh, you put your finger right on it. That's so sad. And Celia flat out says she couldn't live without Rosalind. She needs her. Rosalind doesn't really need anybody. That might be the tragedy of Rosalind, right? And she never has to grapple with that because character development is the weirdest thing in this play. It seems to happen magically or not at all. Almost always off stage. Almost always off stage. Everyone has these magnificent revelations where we can't see or hear them. Very inconvenient, guys. Bring that shit on stage. Right. But Rosalind never has a moment like that. She's never challenged to the extent where she has to like rethink her position on the world. Even when Orlando gives him his ultimatum that he's not going to play anymore. I mean, it's not like a moment of crisis for her. She has the solution in hand. She's been waiting to use it. I've seen it played as a moment of crisis for her, which I think is really good staging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because it gives her something that the text doesn't. Yeah, that's smart directing. Because you're right, it's just absent. It's not out of control for her. There are two moments in this play when I could plausibly buy a crisis moment for Rosalind. And one is that scene where Orlando says, peace out, thank you, but I can't. And the other one is the breakup scene with Celia. Right, as mentioned last time, when Celia makes it clear that she's not joking around anymore. And Rosalind has to tell her up front, I'm so sorry, but we are done. Yeah. As you said, it's smart directing, particularly because if the crisis moment is with Orlando, instead of with Celia, it emphasizes that that is now the more important relationship to Rosalind. Celia is still the only one she actually listens to and changes for, but Orlando is the one whose decisions can bring her to crisis. Right, because if he actually did leave, she would be heartbroken. Again, it's never that Rosalind doesn't care, it's that she has so much control. If she didn't care, she'd be a sociopath and we wouldn't care about her. Like, she cares very much. Right, I mean, she's just Machiavellian enough to be fun, not so much that you were about the fate of the people around her. Now I just want a crossover where she meets Iago and she's just like, bitch, what are you playing at? Yes! Oh man, you know that scene when they get off the boat and he's bantering with Desdemona? But if it was Rosalind? Oh my god. Oh, see, now I ship that. Now I ship Rosalind Desdemona and it's not even a thing. We're going to do some crossover episodes, so (laughs) we'll explore those questions more in depth. But, you know, if you have ideas and suggestions for that, definitely chime in because obviously there are a lot of possibilities. This is not one I had ever thought of before, though. It's so good, though. Yeah. But yeah, just to go back to it, Rosalind doesn't really have that relationship with anyone, so it does make her problematic, because manipulation is always kind of problematic, right? That just goes without saying. But she is still absolutely a fave. Well, there's a reason that everyone falls in love with her. She's very easy to fall in love with. She's pretty fantastic. She's smart, she's hot, she knows what she's doing, she's clever witty. I mean, it's it's pretty total package. Without ever being a Mary Sue about it, which is impressive writing on Will's part. Well, I think her flaws are clear enough that it's not annoying. Also, Mary Sue's never strike me as that smart or that witty. Is that weird? No, no, it's not weird. I think 
if this story had been written by a lesser writer, she would be a Mary Sue. On a purely plot basis, everyone loves her, everything breaks right for her, she gets everything she wants. I think it's the skill of the characterization and of everyone else around her that helps show her humanity, as opposed to all the manifold ways in which she's perfect. That's nicely said, I would definitely agree. We get more of an insight into her complexity than just the ways in which she's fantastic, although she is. I mean, you let those shine on their own because they do but yeah the way that she's invested in certain people the way she responds to her uncle which we really haven't talked about very much when he's trying to banish her i mean this is a woman who is unafraid and knows who she is and is going to say it yeah she's got no fear you're right you put your finger right on it yeah so she sticks up for herself she's protective of celia on multiple levels kind of as we've gotten into so there's still a tenderness there there's that great line where she confronts her uncle her kicker in her plea which is not so much a plea as a fuck you argument. Celia is the one who pleads. Rosalind is the one who says the truth. After running down all the things that she is not, aka a traitor, she says, good my liege, mistake me not so much to think my poverty is treacherous. <laughs> She's saying, you're an idiot. It's your fault that I have nothing to fall back on but whatever my cousin's love gives me. And you are completely misreading a situation that you yourself have created to the guy who could kill her. Gutsy, gutsy lady. There are totally valid reasons for everyone to be in love with Rosalind. Not saying there aren't. Just she's a little tricky to pair with people and expect that it's going to work out fine. That gutsiness, though, adds an extra level of funny to the scene where Oliver shows her the bloodstained handkerchief from Orlando. That is the moment <laughs> when she faints. She can face down her uncle in full rage. She can outbanter anybody in the play, including the fool character. She can jump in between a whiny set of would-be lovers and completely upend it. She can outface her own would-be lover to his face and pretend she's something she is and is not without compunction. And Orlando in grave physical danger is what makes her lose consciousness. <laughs> You're right, it's, it's almost unbelievable. <laughs> it is, but... No, but in like the weird, funny, adorable way that things are unbelievable in this play. Right. A, it helps to emphasize how much she actually cares about him. And B, it's kind of par for the course that this is a play and a world in which absurd, ridiculous things happen and are okay to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I think the degree of artifice is really clear here. It's not always clear in comedies, but this is an extremely artificial space. And you can kind of do whatever you want with those characters as a result. It's all just kind of fun and fine. The fact that she genuinely cares makes all the other stuff, the bullshit that she puts Orlando through, maybe not totally okay, but I think more acceptable. Not justified, but it's going to come out okay. Yeah, and he clearly doesn't mind that much. Usually in Shakespearean comedies, I am worried for the main couple by the end. I'm not worried about Rosalind and Orlando. They're going to be fine. Oh yeah, well, he's devoted and she's got this. Long as he doesn't start writing poetry again, they're good. <sighs> the poetry. Just don't, honey. No, it's not for everybody. You have many other talents, one of which is looking really hot naked. <laughs> I was gonna say, fine qualities indeed. <laughs> Okay, so that's kind of our central problematic fave. Did you want to talk about any of the more minor ones? I don't really have any other faves. I mean, I love Touchstone, but it's really hard to ship him with anyone because he's such a snob. Right, we've already talked about the ways in which he's, you know, clearly not that serious about Audrey. I kind of just want to ship Touchstone with the audience because that's clearly his one true love. <laughs> I was going to say, Touchstone ships Touchstone with the audience. Yeah. He wants to be with you. He needs you. 
He loves you. All of you. He needs your love. So very much. Since we don't have that many faves, I guess we have some ships to sink, huh? <laughs> the favorite part. Or one of them, anyway. So there are two main ones here, right? There's one that I just find particularly annoying, and then there's one that we both hate. So we'll start with the annoying one. Yeah, we can work up to rage. For me, that's Oliver and Celia. So at the end of the play, as often happens in comedies very conveniently Shakespeare pairs the spares in this case Orlando's brother Oliver who isn't even much of a major figure and I don't think deserves pairing and then of course Celia who was the real reason for this very arbitrary marriage because Shakespeare has to pair Celia up otherwise she's Antonio at the end of A Merchant of Venice yeah and I guess no one wants that Merchant of Venice not Twelfth Night Antonio I mean or Twelfth Night Antonio any Antonio really Antonios don't fare well in Shakespeare mainly because it's code for gay. But no, there's that wonderful movie of The Merchant of Venice that came out in 04. Antonio is inside in the cool blue lighting of dawn while the married couples are upstairs boinking. He is left alone. Uh Uh-uh. And he's Jeremy Irons. Ooh, Jeremy Irons shouldn't be alone. But anyway, we're not talking about Merchant this time. Yeah, we're talking about the ways in which Celia is not an Antonio, right? Uh, She needs a dude because we can't have any unrequited lesbianness. That would be not okay. That would be a subversion too far even for this play. The subversions get to exist within the structure of the play. When the play ends, they have to end too. Alas. Tragically. Unless you're Twelfth Night, in which case those are some crazy shenanigans. Almost certainly. But even then, order is at least superficially restored. (laughs) Oliver Celia bugs me though. Part of it is that it all happens offstage. We do not see any connection between them. We don't get a hint in previous scenes of the two of them individually that there could be any kind of simpatico connection between the two of them. Oliver is an asshole. I mean, what we get is in fact a dissertation on how they are polar opposites. They each hold the power in their sibling slash cousin relationship. Celia is the daughter of the current duke and Oliver is the eldest brother. And while Celia uses her power for immense good, cherishing Rosalind and keeping her close and making her feel like she's absolutely a valued part of the court and of Celia's life, Oliver doesn't give a shit about Orlando. He actively wants him ground even further under his own heel. He tries to kill him in the wrestling match. There's been nothing in the whole play that would indicate that this is a marriage that could last. No. Or really any reason why they would be drawn together in the first place. It's just arbitrary. Shakespeare obviously doesn't even care about it because he gives so little justification for it. It's just like, yeah, Oliver and Celia, sure, why not? I mean, I'd rather see her with Jacquees, to be honest. At least she could have fun making fun of him. At least Jacquees isn't a shit. Right, tried to murder his own brother. The other part of it, too, is that our belief in that relationship hinges on the change of heart that Oliver has that he tells us about. That is so unbelievably down to the actor to make us even buy a fraction of, because it's all offstage. It's not foreshadowed or built up to in any way. The most successful Oliver I've ever seen just played up the ridiculousness of it, kind of stumbled on stage like he was giddy and he wasn't in full control of his faculties and he was just like I have the story and I'm gonna blurt it out and I don't know who you are but you need to hear about what's happened to me and it was absurd and it worked as well as I think that scene can work because they acknowledge the absurdity I mean you almost have to I think as we've probably noted change happens so strangely in As You Like It because it pretty much happens immediately and not where you can see it so there's no kind of gradual redemption for any character or coming into self or anything like 
like that. Everything that happens happens really fast and often without much justification. I mean, the Duke Frederick at the end is another good example, right? He just has an awakening and repents of what he's done. It makes no sense whatsoever. Maybe we're particularly sensitized to it because we just did Hamlet. (laughs) And it takes Hamlet five acts to go from, oh, that this two two sullied flesh would melt to there is special providence in the fall of the sparrow. And we go on that entire journey with him. We're emotionally invested in watching him change and learn and grow. And we're pretty entirely denied that for any character in this play, even including Rosalind. No, hard agree on that. And it's especially strange because, as you pointed out, there isn't really much of a plot in this play. You would assume then, maybe in the manner of Hamlet, that there would be more of a character study, but there isn't. Which, again, is odd because this play is almost entirely character-driven because of no plot. Right, but it's just that there are so many characters that you kind of end up with a play at the end. So yeah, for all those reasons, Oliver and Celia makes me angry because it just seems pointless to me, and it's deeply unfair to Celia, who's a pretty kick-ass character. For my money, it is the worst Shakespearean pair of the spares. Yeah, I can't think of a worse one, so I'm gonna have to agree with you. Maybe we'll come across one the more we do this. The only other one that crosses my mind in egregiousness is Hortensio marrying the widow we've never met before in Taming of the Shrew. But like, I don't care about Hortensio. And again, we've never met the widow. And I care about Celia. Deeply. We spend a lot of time with her and understanding her feelings about Rosalind, but also how smart and appealing she is. You know, if there wasn't no Rosalind in this play, then we would still have Celia. But you cannot make that argument for Oliver and Orlando. They are not even on the same level. Because if Orlando's basically a good dude, no other modifiers, Oliver's basically a bad dude. Who gets redeemed at the end because Celia needs some D. Or as I would argue, she is trying to stay close to Rosalind, so there's probably not going to be a lot of D in the relationship. No, I mean, I should have clarified, Will thinks Celia needs some D. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, just to, you know, get her back in the normative sphere of things. Enough of this cousin business. (laughs) Oh, you brought it back. Always. But okay, that does pale in comparison to the worst pairing in this play, which is easily Sylvius and Phoebe. Oh my god, I hate them both. I don't know if anyone actually ships this, but if you do, we're gonna sink it. I mean, you know how in Oliver's story, he tells about how Orlando saved him first from a snake and then from a lion? (laughs) My dream is that that snake and that lion redirected themselves, found Sylvius and Phoebe, and put us all out of our misery. These two idiots are unbearable. <laughs> They're not even funny. That's the worst part. No. The humor that you get out of them is partly because Rosalind is in all of their scenes, so she's the one cracking the jokes, and partly you're encouraged to laugh at them. Right. They're not funny in and of themselves. They're only funny because the slightly more sophisticated audience knows that they're shit people. It's a painful humor, which does not work for me at all. Don't really enjoy laughing at people in general, and they're terrible. I will freely admit that on occasion, painful humor is great. Like, there's a lot of painful humor in, like, Mel Brooks, but it works best for me when it's in small doses. This subplot is a major part of the play. Right, it gets a lot of real estate compared to pretty much any other pairing except for Rosalind and Orlando, which is odd because these are such side characters. Like, for God's sake, they get more stage time than Oliver and Celia together. Yeah, because everybody does. 
it really doesn't make any sense. Also, I think the differentiation between, say, like Mel Brooks and what Shakespeare is doing here is I think it's fine to laugh at characters when the writer doesn't so obviously hate them. Yeah, I'd agree. Will hates Phoebe and probably Sylvius too. He's at least deeply making fun of him. He's using him as a stand-in, as we said, for Petrarch and Love. So there's nothing appealing about either of them. They're both awful. It's the worst kind of stereotype with a dogged pursuit of the woman being rewarded, which I absolutely hate every time I see it. It is the worst. Guys, don't do this. No, it's not going to work out. And there's no reason it should work out here except Rosalind manipulates them because she can. Like, there's no other reason. It's not for their own good. It's not for anything. It's just because she can and she's kind of bored. Well, she feels bad for Sylvius. <laughs> she really cares about Sylvius. No, I mean, he's like way down on her to care about list. I'm not going to put up a fight. No. Sylvius is a nice guy. Like, with all of the negative connotations that implies. Every single one. He's like, oh, well, you know, I just love you and want to write poetry about you, even though I don't actually know a damn thing about you. I'm going to find lines, because there are lines. There are a lot of lines. They just make me really angry. I'm sure we're all familiar with the idea of the metaphor in nice guy wooing. Mm -hmm. This person is so mean and so awful. You don't want to be like that, do you? you. <clears throat> I present you with Silvius, Act 3, Scene 5. The common executioner, whose heart the accustomed sight of death makes hard, falls not the axe upon the humbled neck, but first begs pardon. Will you sterner be than he that dies and lives by bloody drops? I mean, number one, if you're trying to get a girl into bed, don't compare her to a head chopper. Just don't do it. That doesn't work for you, Liz? Not really. I prefer a little more subtlety and less shaming in my wooing. <laughs> Number two, it is a dick move. It is manipulative. He's negging her. Oh, yeah. You know, when he's not trying to make her feel bad for him, he's just trying to make her feel bad. In hopes that somehow, finally, this thing he's been trying to do for ages will work at last. Right. I mean, even the first time we see Sylvius, right, where he's telling Corin, like, you just don't understand my feelings. First of all, that is a trope in Shakespeare. Like, lots of people do it, including Romeo, but... Orsino leads off Twelfth Night by doing it to his whole court, and they are sick of it. Exactly. On the other hand, Sylvius, you know, Romeo and he ain't no Orsino either. No, Romeo actually has poetic gifts that we see blossom when he encounters true love. Right. No one's a good poet in this play. <laughs> I mean, except for the entire text, but... Sure, broadly speaking. William Shakespeare is a good poet. The characters in As You Like It are not. I mean, maybe kudos to him for being able to write bad poetry coming out of his characters. That's a skill. It's like a singer singing deliberately off-key. Yeah, or a dancer pretending to have no rhythm. Yeah, no mad props. Except for this set of characters. Couldn't have done that any better, Will. I just don't know what the point of them is, actually. That might be my biggest problem, is why does this have to happen? What does this bring to any of the themes that we were talking about except I guess to make fun of courtly love. That's true but we're also doing that more interestingly and more effectively with the wooing scenes between Orlando and Rosalind. They just both had to have O names. It's almost like they're brothers. But then their middle brother is another Jaquies and it's just like what the fuck Shakespeare? What the fuck? 
Yeah, that was extra random. Again, I forgot he existed. You're supposed to, I think. He's so random and useless. I mean, he's not useless because he like brings in the good news at the end, but in any, we're not talking about him. No, we're, we're talking about the bullshit. The wooing scenes between Orlando and Rosalind are like the more highbrow deconstruction of courtly love. The Sylvia's Phoebe scenes are the deconstructions of courtly love that the groundlings will actually get. That's a fair point. Which is hilarious to talk about lowbrow versus highbrow in Shakespeare, given that it is the ultimate form of lowbrow entertainment. Seriously, I mean, it's full of dick jokes. That might be a way to look at it. I don't know. That's useful. I mean, it still annoys me. Don't get me wrong. Oh yeah, it's still a really frustrating subplot in a play with too many characters already. Right. They're an obvious foil, I guess, for Orlando and Rosalind, but I don't know why they need it. You've already removed them to this other location. Like, you've already taken them out of the court. So I think we've introduced as much country life rusticness as you maybe need to. It's just unpleasant to spend time with either one of them. And when the two of them are together, you just, like, want to stick your fingers in your ears. Yeah, I mean, we have a comparison, right? Because we can look at Twelfth Night because a similar situation arises, at least on the surface, between Viola and Olivia, right? But it doesn't play out the same way at all. For one thing, Olivia is a character who gets respect both in the play and from her author. Absolutely. Phoebe has neither. And as annoying as Orsino is, he is not even close to the dickhead that Silvius is. I mean, Orsino has his nice guy tendencies too, but at least he has the decency to have them from a distance. Right. Silvius is like in her face being like, hey girl, take your earphones out. I want to talk to you. <laughs> Why aren't you smiling? <laughs> you should smile more. You're so much prettier when you smile, Phoebe. Yeah, there's nothing redemptive here. You can't fix it. But again, also, Twelfth Night is much more interested in actively examining the fluidity of sexuality. Right. As you like, it really displays very little of that. Again, I think partly because the cross-dressing does seem so arbitrary and doesn't change anything in the relationship between the two people. While it does allow Rosalind to instruct Orlando, it doesn't really serve the same function for me as Viola's does in Twelfth Night. Viola has a better defined character arc than Rosalind does. True. But the cross-dressing for Viola is absolutely essential for her survival. There is, I think, an argument to be made for how deeply she falls into the persona that she plays. Yes, Cesario is a real person. Whereas Ganymede is a mask. She is always Rosalind, no matter how she's dressed. It's a good point. I mean, even the name is kind of a joke, right? Like, call me Ganymede. Right. Like, oh, subtle there, hon. I halfway get the feeling that she's just like, well, we're going to the forest. I've kind of always wanted to wear pants, so let's do this. I buy it. It's flippant in the way that Rosalind Oft is, and I think that makes the gender reveal at the end less interesting. And then we also have Phoebe's reaction, and because it's Phoebe, there's really nothing to be had from it. Yeah, no, what is it exactly that she says? It's pretty much the Shakespearean version of ew, right? Right. When she sees Rosalind in the dress, she says, if sight and shape be true, why then my love adieu? Yeah, that fast. There's no moment of confusion or anything. And then there's that moment when um, the god Hymen... <laughs> gives benedictions to the four pairs of lovers who are getting married. He says lovely things to Orlando and Rosalind and even to Oliver and Celia. You and you, no cross shall part. You and you are heart in heart. Then he turns to Phoebe and he says, you to his love must accord or have a woman to your lord. Mm -hmm. It's just like, oh great, those are my choices? Right, and you know, there's nothing wrong with the second one except of course there would have been at the time. It never really ventures out of the heteronormative for me the way that 
that some of the other cross-dressing plays do. Yeah, and I think it's tricky for a director to stage that scene and to have the actor play Phoebe with any kind of dignity or poignant commentary because of the way that she's written, because of the way the play is written. If the play takes Phoebe more seriously, then the lowbrow comedy is lost, and then Rosalind looks like a dick. She is a little bit in that moment. But what the audience is supposed to be feeling is joy and happiness that the lovers who are supposed to be together have finally, finally, finally gotten together. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's supposed to be a nice, happy resolution. Everyone gets what they deserve. But in the case of Phoebe and Sylvius, obviously that's really uncomfortable for modern audiences, or at least this modern audience. Again, I've never seen it played with Phoebe being truly regretful and not just, ew, a girl. Mm -hmm. But I think if it was played like that, I think I would feel the same way about it as I do when productions of Twelfth Night put considerable weight on Malvolio's I'll Be Revenged on the Whole Pack of You. Oh, right. It checks you out of the relief of the ending and forces you to remember that there are people at stake here. And I think it's a really interesting director's choice, but it's never one that makes the play comfortable to leave. No. And, you know, maybe it shouldn't be. Maybe we shouldn't be okay with Malvolio's treatment at the end of Twelfth Night. Maybe we shouldn't be okay with Phoebe's treatment here. It's a little hard to say. All for making audiences uncomfortable to make a point. <laughs> but, yeah. At minimum, there's something fairly unsatisfying about it. And the way I usually read the play, this pairing makes me very angry. It's awful. <laughs> it is. It is rewarding a nice guy with a whiny brat. No one comes out well in that situation like no one's going to be happy you talked about anticipating what's going to happen to couples oh yeah at the end of the play nothing good is going to happen to these two you know they'd probably be lucky to end up with the lion and the snake i choose to forget kind of that oliver and celia happen and these are the ones i'm worried about mm -hmm. i mean Celia's gonna handle herself i'm just mad that shakespeare couldn't think of anything better to do for her that was lame sauce will very Ugh. but yeah fuck this ship <laughs> Fuck that ship so much. I think we have satisfyingly sunk it though, and Oliver and Celia as well. If for some reason these are your ships, I would actually be fascinated to hear your reasoning. So definitely get in touch. And as we wrap up As You Like It, we're gonna finish as we always do with our hate sex couple or couples of the month. We were talking about a couple options for this, but I think there's one clear winner, yeah? Uh, is the one you suggested? Not to toot my own horn here, but... <laughs> I like the one you suggested the best, so yeah, we're gonna go with that one. Aside from the Sylvia's Phoebe bullshit, the most overt and kind of yet sexy hostility in the play happens between Orlando and Jaquies. Improbably, yes, but I'm gonna call this ship, um, Better Strangers. <laughs> <laughs> because that's what Orlando wants <laughs> never to see Jeffries again <laughs> And that is my favorite insult from this play. Orlando, of all people, to Jaquies, I do desire we may be better strangers. Yes, it is also one of my favorites. I've said that to people IRL. <laughs> Did they know what you meant? People have to stop and think about it. No, you just said something mean. Um, yeah, no, it's a fantastic scene. I'm not entirely sure why they hate each other so much. It does seem to just be like a mismatch of personalities. I don't think these were ever people who were going to be pals, because Orlando is too earnest and Jaquies is too sardonic. And Orlando is being extra annoying because he's super in love. And Jaquies is talking shit about his lady. I think really just because he can, though. I mean, it's not because he cares. No, no, no. Jaquies doesn't give a shit. He just wants to bug with people. Right. It's not a Yakimo situation. <laughs> but, like, Orlando is hitting that Rosalind button super hard in this conversation. It's the only word he knows at this point in the play. 
Bless him. Sweet cinnamon roll that he is. He is the cinnamon roll of this. Well, he and Celia are the cinnamon rolls of this play. They are cinnamon rolls. The two of them are just fluffy goodness with icing. Now I want cinnamon rolls. Fuck. <laughs> Sorry. You didn't do anything wrong. Wanting cinnamon rolls is always a good thing. But yeah, no, they make a pretty fun hate sex couple. It's a little hard to imagine them getting together because of Orlando's um, obsession with Rosalind. Orlando's kind of Rosalind sexual. <laughs> yeah, at this point. But, you know, if in the course of dealing with Ganymede, quote unquote, maybe there was some frustration, I could definitely see this going down. Oh, yeah. Just like running into each other. Oh, you. I hate you. I have so many feelings right now. Get over here. <laughs> Let's just deal with some of these. Yep. God knows I'm not getting any anywhere else. Yeah, it's just born a huge frustration. If Jigweez and Duke Sr. aren't actually getting it on, then yeah, Jigweez isn't getting any either. It would explain a few things about his disposition, our melancholy bro. No, I think it probably runs deeper than that. A personality fact. <laughs> or even if it didn't, Jigweez would say it did. Oh yeah, for sure. This is a man committed to being a downer. <laughs> I'm realizing there's that line that Jigweez has where he says, will you sit down with me and we too will rail against our mistress, the world and all our misery. Oh, he's not opposed to this being a thing. No, no, you're right. I think he probably likes the exchange of insults. Weirdly, even though like Orlando is genuinely annoyed. Oh, yeah. I don't think he necessarily minds so much. I think he'd get a kick out of it. Oh, for sure. And would make fun of Orlando the entire time. Oh, yeah. Like he would tease Orlando about crying in the middle, even if Orlando didn't. <laughs> Yes, that would be a thing. And Orlando would be like, shut up, oh my god. Don't you go writing any poetry about me, asshole. <laughs> and Orlando would be like, I would if I knew what your name rhymed with. <laughs> How to say it. <laughs> oh, well, I ended up liking that more than most of the other shifts in the play. <laughs> At least they have chemistry. They do. I mean, the hate sex couple of the month is like always one of our favorites. That's true. It's just, you get to explore aspects of the characters that you wouldn't otherwise. Fucking love it. It's super fun. Do you have any other favorite insults in this exchange? Right before my favorite, Jaquiz says, God be with you. Let's meet as little as we can. <laughs> You're right. Orlando's agreeing with him when he says, I do desire with maybe better strangers. At the end of the scene, Jaquiz says, by my troth, I was seeking for a fool when I found you. Oh, yeah. No, that's solid. Orlando says, he is drowned in the brook. Look but in and you shall see him. Yeah, no, you're right. These two are, are made for each other in some way. Like, no one else has been able to bring this out in Orlando. Not even Rosalind. Yeah, he never seems clever in the rest of the play. And he's witty as hell right here. Just needed a good hate sex partner. That was all. They all do. It brings out the best in everybody. Ironically. If we want to get into the incest ships, I could also very much see Oliver Orlando. Oh, yeah. And the Dukes. I don't know. I don't want to be too squicky. But yeah, those are absolutely options because we do have two sets of brothers who apparently hate each other. I'm more into Oliver Orlando than I am the Dukes because in the very first scene, they're like grappling with each other. It's true. It's very physical. Orlando gets the better of Oliver and Oliver is not in the position of power, which freaks him out and kind of tickles Orlando. And it's just like, I could see this dynamic playing out very interestingly in Hate Sex if it weren't for the fact that they were brothers. Yeah, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Like, obviously, that's not like a taboo for us to discuss because we definitely brought up some incest last week, but Shakespeare brought it up. It's not our fault. Also, I ship Sam and Dean. That cherry got popped a long time ago. <laughs> 
we're gonna get some weird tweets Alrighty, that concludes our discussion of as you like it as always hit us up on twitter and tell us what you think about the pairings in the play and what ships you would sink send us your fic we'd love to read it yeah we're all about the fic most fic if you write sylvia's phoebe it better be a damn good fic it better be the best fic ever <laughs> let's be real but if you want to explain oliver celia i would read that yeah i think you could do some interesting character work there obviously you could do interesting character work in as you like it in general because there is a lot that doesn't get done so yeah send us your thoughts send us your fic and thanks for listening everyone talk to you next time this show is produced by us julia and liz as part of the adjective sphinx network the music we use is Almain One by John Bull and can be found at museopen.com. You can find links for more info in the show notes. Find us and our sibling shows on Twitter at AdjectiveSphinx or email us at AdjectiveSphinx at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.